0: Hello, this is episode 11 of the Hate Crime Files, a podcast about crimes typically involving violence motivated by prejudice based on race, religion, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, or other grounds. I'm your host, Terrence Heath. This podcast covers disturbing events and may not be suitable for everyone. It is not recommended for children under 13. Listener discretion is advised. Before getting into the feature story for this episode, let's take a look at hate crimes in recent news. Police in Dallas, Texas have arrested a man they say admitted to shouting anti-LGBTQ slurs at a transgender woman before shooting her. The attack happened on Friday, September 22nd, at around 11 p.m. 29-year-old Domingo Ramirez Cavente allegedly pulled up beside Rory Calderon, who is transgender, in his Chevrolet pickup truck and, quote, began speaking derogatorily of gay and transgender people. When Calderon walked to a nearby bus stop to escape the attack, Ramirez Cavente followed her and opened fire, hitting her in the chest and arm. Ramirez Cavente was taken into custody on Tuesday after a four-day manhunt. It is the latest in a string of attacks on Dallas's transgender community in recent years. A federal judge ruled that an anti-gay church the Florida-based D. James Kennedy Ministries can be labeled a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Though the court did not decide on whether the church is an actual hate group, Judge Myron Thompson of the U.S. District Court in Montgomery, Alabama tossed out the lawsuit against the Southern Poverty Law Center on free speech grounds. A former New Jersey police chief is on trial accused of a hate crime in a case that has rocked Bordentown Township, a small community just outside of Trenton. Federal authorities say Frank Nucera, who is white, had a, quote, significant history of making racist comments concerning African-Americans, spoke about joining a firing squad to mow them down, and used police dogs to intimidate black spectators at high school basketball games. The charges stem from a September 1, 2016 incident in which prosecutors say Nocera attacked a handcuffed black suspect in police custody in the Burlington County town. A Chicago-area man caught on video berating a woman for wearing a T-shirt displaying a Puerto Rican flag has been convicted of a hate crime. Timothy Tribus was convicted Wednesday, September 25th, in a Cook County court over his tirade against Mia Irizarry at the Caldwell Woods Forest Preserve in Chicago in June 2018. In cell phone footage captured by Irizarry, Tribus repeatedly asks her if she's an American citizen and tells her you should be wearing the United States of America flag, not Puerto Rico. At another point, he tells her, you're not going to change us. If you're an American citizen, you should not be wearing that shirt in America. Tribus uses profanity in the video and repeatedly approaches Irazari, coming within inches of her face. Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory, and its residents were granted citizenship in 1917. Tribus is scheduled to be sentenced next month and faces probation to up to two to five years in prison. Two white girls in upstate New York, ages 11 and 10, are facing charges in a racially motivated attack on a 10-year-old African-American girl, on a school bus. The alleged attack occurred September 10th in Governor Village, about 100 miles north of Syracuse. A 28-year-old bus monitor, who was also white, was charged with endangering the welfare of a child for not intervening. The alleged victim was left with a black eye, bruises, and missing hair after her two classmates beat her up. Governor Andrew M. Cuomo has asked the State Division of Human Rights to investigate the alleged hate crime. I'm appalled by the reports of the horrendous 20-minute racist assault on a 10-year-old African-American girl in the town of Governor, Mr. Cuomo said in a press release. When I covered the Tree of Life Synagogue shooting in Episode 8, a term came up a couple of times that I wanted to explore a bit more in this episode, Terrorism. As the name indicates, this is a podcast about hate crimes, but many of the incidents covered in this podcast could be called acts of terrorism. Many certainly fit the definition of terrorism, but aren't necessarily referred to as such by our political leaders or mainstream media. In this episode, I want to look at a few such incidents and examine why they aren't necessarily called terrorism. It would probably help to start with a working definition of terrorism. There are multiple conflicting and competing definitions. Legal systems, government agencies, and organizations use different meanings. The U.S. Code of Federal Regulations defines terrorism as, quote, the unlawful use of force and violence against persons or property to intimidate or coerce a government, the civilian population, or any segment thereof in furtherance of political or social objectives. But in the broadest sense, terrorism is the unlawful use of violence, and intimidation, especially against civilians, in pursuit of political aims. There are also different kinds of terrorism, but in this episode, we're focusing on domestic terrorism. The FBI defines it as terrorism, quote, perpetrated by individuals and or groups inspired by or associated primarily with U.S.-based movements that Extremist Ideologies of a Political, Social, Racial, or Environmental Nature. In fact, we're focusing rather narrowly in this episode on extremist ideologies of a political, social, or racial nature. In a previous episode, we looked at data from the Federal Bureau of Investigation suggesting that hate crimes increased as much as 17% in 2017, the first year of Donald Trump's presidency. Race and religion were the primary drivers of hate crimes in that year, with an 18% increase in crimes motivated by race, ancestry, or ethnicity, and a 23% increase in religion-based hate crimes. Data for 2018 isn't yet available. Hate crimes, in fact, increased over three consecutive years. In 2015, hate crimes increased by 4.6% compared to the previous year. The total tally of hate crimes in 2016 was 6,121 compared to 5,850 in 2015. Nearly 59% of the victims were targeted because of their race. A further 21.1% were targeted because of religion and 16.7% because of sexual orientation. The FBI data isn't perfect. Underreporting of hate crimes means the information we have is disappointingly incomplete. Not all law enforcement agencies take part in the Bureau's data collection, And not all of those that do participate report hate crimes. The result is that our most reliable and current source of national hate crime data is potentially undercounting hate crimes by a magnitude of more than 40%. Donald Trump rode a wave of divisive and xenophobic rhetoric all the way to the Oval Office. It's no coincidence that his rise is paralleled by an increase in hate crimes, but additional FBI data suggests we're facing another related problem fueled by the same racial resentment and anxiety that Trump exploited so successfully. The FBI has reported a significant rise in white supremacist domestic terrorism in recent months, In 2017, there were about 150 arrests on charges the FBI classifies as domestic terror, and about 120 in 2018. The FBI is on course to match or exceed those numbers for this year. The agency currently has about 850 open domestic terrorism investigations 40% of which are cases of racially motivated violent extremism. Testifying before the House Homeland Security Committee in May of this year, Assistant Director for Counterterrorism Michael McGarrity said a significant majority of those racially motivated attacks involved white supremacist extremists, and he called the threat posed by domestic terrorists in the U.S. persistent and evolving. This is not a new trend. In May 2017, the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security said in a joint brief that WSE's white supremacist extremists were responsible for 49 homicides in 26 attacks, more than any other domestic group. In August of the same year, FBI Director Christopher Wray wrote, But the primary terrorist threat to the homeland today is, without question, homegrown violent extremists. That's what keeps us up at night, and no doubt, many of you too. In January 2019, the Anti-Defamation League released a report finding that attackers with ties to right-wing extremist movements killed at least 50 people in 2018. The attacks included the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh by a man who blamed Jews for the migrant caravan, the mass shooting at a yoga studio by an incel obsessed with interracial dating, and the school massacre in Parkland, Florida, carried out by a student who wished that, quote, all Jews were dead. The number of fatalities is 35% higher than the previous year, and it marks the fourth deadliest year for such attacks since 1970. In fact, according to the ADL, white supremacists are responsible for the majority of such attacks almost every year. The ADL report found that from 2009 through 2018, right-wing extremists accounted for 73% of such killings compared with 23% for islamists and 3% for left-wing extremists in other words most terrorist attacks in the united states and most deaths from terrorist attacks are caused by white supremacist extremists but they do not create the sort of widespread panic that helped trump win The 2016 election and helped the GOP expand its Senate majority in the midterms. Instead, they seem to be created by a sort of panic Trump and his supporters and conservative media have stirred up around immigration and some imagined terrorist threat from dark and sinister others massing on our southern border. Robert Bauer's anti-Semitic attack at the Tree of Life synagogue was fueled by extreme rhetoric that Jews were bringing immigrants into the U.S. as part of a scheme to somehow benefit Jews by undermining the nation's white majority. But men like Bauer aren't often referred to as terrorists in the media, let alone prosecuted as such by the legal system. Instead, they are labeled lone wolves, without connection to an organization or even an identifiable movement, exempting them from charges of terrorism in the public imagination. In other cases, like Mark Anthony Condit, the Austin bomber, whose package bombs killed two people and wounded five more in Texas, they're described as quiet and nerdy more often than not, from tight-knit and God-fearing families. Why aren't their attacks called terrorism? What's missing? Their ideology and actions line up well enough with the definitions of terrorism, and it seems evident that a Muslim, Arab, or otherwise non-white culprit would almost immediately raise suspicion of terrorism and be labeled as such. It would seem that the deciding factor is the identity of the actors themselves. When a white man kills people in the name of race or religion, it's called a hate crime. When a non-white or foreign person does the same, it's called terrorism. There are notable exceptions. According to Rabbi Yisrael Goldstein, the man who attacked his synagogue in Poway, California, and who shot Goldstein in both hands, was a terrorist, not merely a white supremacist. Terror will not win, the rabbi said on NBC's Today. Everyone needs to step up and do something in the face of terror. In the 2017 murder of Timothy Kaufman, The legal system actually recognized his death as an act of terrorism and his killer as a terrorist. Timothy Kaufman was a 66-year-old African-American man. He was born in 1950 or 51 in Jamaica, Queens, in New York City. His mother, Tula, was a home health care worker for wealthy residents of nearby Jamaica estates. His father, William, was pastor of Mount Zion Baptist Church. Growing up in the Forty projects as the South Jamaica houses were known because of the nearby presence of public school Forty, Kaufman was known as Hard Rock because, though he was not one to start a fight, he never left one unfinished either. He was known in the community as not someone who started a fight, but if you started it, he finished it, said one of his cousins. Kaufman used the skills he learned facing down local bullies in the boxing ring. Kaufman graduated from Brooklyn College with an associate's degree. In his early years, he worked as an anti-poverty and social service worker. For several years in Queens, Kaufman ran a division of the Neighborhood Youth Corps, a federal anti poverty program that provided part time jobs to disadvantaged youth. He probably gave out about two or three thousand jobs to people in the community, said one of his cousins. He also worked as a concert promoter and was particularly proud. Of booking an early gig for Earth, Wind, and Fire before they became famous. In his spare time, Kaufman was an avid autograph collector with a knack for spotting celebrities on the streets of New York. He even managed to get stars like Oprah Winfrey and Wyclef Jean to pose for selfies with him. Kaufman posted these pictures to his Twitter account where he can be seen posing with the likes of Beyonce, Russell Simmons. D.L. Hughley, Gabby Douglas, and Kiki Palmer. Kaufman was a fan of actress Sherry Headley, who played a district attorney on Tyler Perry's soap opera The Haves and Have-Nots. She held a live chat on Twitter every Tuesday, and Kaufman rarely missed one. For the last 20 years of his life, Kaufman lived on West 36th Street in Manhattan, At the Barber Hotel, the single-room occupancy hotel now provides housing for people transitioning out of homelessness, but Kaufman was not homeless. Sven Jorgensen, the chief executive of Praxis Housing Initiatives, which manages the Barber, said that of the 100-odd residents, Kaufman was one of the few who were actually permanent tenants and not part of the transient program. Kaufman took up can-and-bottle recycling to make extra money and keep busy. He used the money he made in part to help finance trips to Washington, D.C., where he enjoyed attending congressional hearings. Kaufman was searching for recyclables on the night of March 17, 2017, when he had a fatal encounter with 28-year-old James Jackson. Jackson grew up in the almost all-white Baltimore suburb of Towson, Maryland. According to the 2000 census, the racial makeup of the area was 86.9% white, 7.53% African-American, 0.1% Native American, 3.7% Asian, and 1.9% Hispanic. More recently, he's lived in Baltimore's Hamden neighborhood, which is 78% white in a city that is nearly 70% black. Jackson described his family as, quote, as liberal as they come, typical liberal Democrats. His grandfather, his mother's father, Ernest Merkline Jr., was a prominent pro-integration leader in Shreveport, Louisiana, who had crosses burned on his lawn. Merkline was a member of the Caddo Parish School Board and led efforts to integrate the schools there. So what happened? Most of the time, the fruit does not fall far from the tree, but in Jackson's case, it rolled quickly some distance away from the family legacy. Jackson claimed to have his first racist thought at the age of three. Besides being raised in a liberal family, Jackson attended and graduated from the 233-year-old Quaker Friends School on Baltimore's North Charles Street. But somehow the Friends message of peace and the principles of nonviolence and equality just didn't take. I guess it's like anything. If something gets pushed on you too much, you reject it, Jackson said to a reporter. As he grew older, Jackson said he kept his views to himself and only expressed himself with, quote, like-minded people online. Jackson visited sites like the neo-Nazi website The Daily Stormer, frequented by Dylan Roof, who was convicted and sentenced to death for the racially motivated murders of nine parishioners at the historically black Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A YouTube channel belonging to Jackson contained no original content but subscribed to multiple white nationalist channels. Jackson's subscriptions included the channels of the National Policy Institute, which is run by white separatist Richard B. Spencer, several devoted to Hitler, others allied with the anti-feminist movement MGTOW, or Men Going Their Own Way and one belonging to conspiracist Alex Jones of InfoWars. Jackson also liked racist videos with titles such as, Is It Time for Whites to Start Voicing Their Displeasure with Black on White Crimes, and Blacks Know That Blacks Are Violent, So Why Does the Media Pretend They Are Not? Despite his virulently racist views in 2008, Jackson actually voted for Barack Obama, whom he named as one of the few mixed-race people he could respect. Jackson was also very clear about voting against the Republican ticket in 2008. I couldn't let Palin get in there. She's stupid, he said. In 2009, Jackson joined the Army, and in October, he was stationed in Baumholder, Germany. In December 2010, he began a nearly year-long deployment to Afghanistan, where he served as a military intelligence analyst in Kabul. In February 2011, he achieved the rank of specialist. Jackson was discharged in 2012. The Army would not confirm Jackson's specific duties or the reason he left the service in August of that year. Jackson went on to enroll in the University of Maryland University College in 2013. He took courses towards a degree in computer networks and security, but did not receive a degree. Jackson loved the sense of mission being in the Army gave him, and he embraced a vision of the U.S. as an imperial power. That wasn't all Jackson gained from his military experience. He would later say that his training helped him formulate his plans to kill black men. I've been thinking about it for a long time, for the past couple of years, he said. I figured I would end up getting shot by police, kill myself, or end up in jail. On March 17th, 2017, Jackson began to put his plan into action when he boarded a bus from Baltimore to New York City. He said he chose New York City because it was the media capital of the world. He stayed at the Hotel Times Square on West 46th Street. Jackson spent three days stalking black men in the city. He walked around the city for hours with two knives hidden in his jacket. He later said he stalked between 10 and 15 individuals or groups, twice coming close to carrying out attacks. Jackson specifically sought out black men who were accompanying white women. Later, he told a reporter for the New York Daily News that he thought the bloodshed would deter white women from entering into interracial relationships. Well, if that guy feels so strongly about it, maybe I shouldn't do it, he said, explaining how he wanted a white woman to think. The white race is being eroded. No one cares about you. The Chinese don't care about you. The blacks don't care about you, he said. On March 20th at 11.30 p.m., Jackson came across Timothy Kaufman at... 36th Street and 9th Avenue, as he was searching for bottles to recycle. Jackson attacked Kaufman, stabbing him several times with a 26-inch Roman short sword he had hidden in his jacket, striking several of Kaufman's organs. A woman who was nearby heard the commotion, but didn't understand what was happening and ran off. She later told detectives she heard Kaufman say, Why are you doing this? What are you doing? Jackson fled the scene, covered in Kaufman's blood. He disposed of the sword in a garbage can in Washington Square Park and ducked into a restaurant bathroom to wash away the blood. Meanwhile, Kaufman managed to make his way to a police station on West 135th Street, where officers summoned an ambulance. Kaufman was taken to Bellevue Hospital, where he later died of his injuries. Two days after the attack, Jackson walked into a police substation at Times Square and turned himself in. I'm the person you're looking for, he said, according to Assistant Chief William Aubrey. In his confession, Jackson told police that he thought blacks were inferior and he'd come to New York to kill one because he wanted to, quote, inspire other white men to make a declaration of total war on the Negro race. Jackson went on to say that he believed blacks, quote, need to be exterminated and stated that, in my opinion, blacks are inferior people, and he thought We should just preserve the best people and get rid of the dead weight. Jackson said that his attack was an amateurish, slipshod version of a terrorist attack. He described interracial couples as an insurmountable problem. I mean, that's the main problem for me. Jackson showed no remorse for stabbing Kaufman, stating... No, he's just a homeless black guy. As already established, Kaufman was not homeless, and it would not have made his murder any less heinous if he had been. Like other white extremists before him, including the Charleston shooter Dylan Roof and Norwegian extremist Anders Bering Breivik, Jackson took the trouble to write down his beliefs and his plans. Listen, he told the police. I wrote all this down. He said, this will probably be clear in my USB drive. There's some documentation that kind of explains my thought process a little more. He told police that he had planned to deliver his writings to the New York Times. The racial world war starts today, Jackson wrote in a 2000 word manifesto emblazoned with a swastika and a crusader's cross found on his flash drive. He continues, This political terrorist attack is a formal declaration of global total war on the Negro races. The manifesto included plans for attacks on other races, but stressed that, quote, Negroes are obviously first on the list and must be extinguished as soon as possible. It also called on nations like Russia, Britain, and China to take on the task of worldwide ethnic cleansing because it was a, quote, complex logistical task. Jackson was charged with second-degree murder at his March 23rd arraignment. Though the prosecutor was reportedly working on upgrading the charge, to first degree as well as adding a hate crime charge. On March 29th, a grand jury brought an indictment. Two of the four counts against Jackson included a special designation, murder but qualified as an act of terrorism. Although terrorism charges are rare for white extremists, a grand jury voted, to file state terrorism charges against Jackson. James Jackson prowled the streets of New York for three days in search of a black person to assassinate in order to launch a campaign of terrorism against our Manhattan community and the values we celebrate, Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus R. Vance Jr. said in a statement. With total presence of mind, he acted on his plan, randomly selecting a beloved New Yorker solely on the basis of his skin color and stabbing him repeatedly and publicly on a Midtown street corner, Vance said. James Jackson wanted to kill black men, planned to kill black men, and did kill a black man. Vance cited portions of Jackson's manifesto, but did not release the entire document to avoid aiding Jackson's campaign. Perhaps Vance understood something about men like Jackson that media, law enforcement, and political leaders don't, can't, or refuse to understand. Though they are often labeled lone wolves and seen as outliers disconnected, From an organized political movement or an overarching phenomena, these lone wolves are a pack and have been for some time. They're united by identitarian ideas such as the Great Replacement Theory popularized by figures like French political extremist Renaud Camus and U.S. media personality Tucker Carlson. The theory holds that white populations in Europe and North America are being replaced by non-white, non-European people. This conspiracy theory motivated white supremacist terrorists like Jackson and the Tree of Life synagogue shooter Robert Bowers. It also inspired the white supremacist chants of you will not replace us and Jews will not replace us heard at the Unite the Right rally in Charleston, Virginia. They inspire, influence, and even communicate with each other on the internet, which white supremacist groups have effectively used to spread their ideology and build communities on social media sites. A New York Times analysis found that at least a third of white extremist killers were inspired by others who carried out similar attacks professed reverence towards them or expressed an interest in their tactics. For example, one shooter in New Mexico corresponded with a gunman who attacked a mall in Munich. They killed a combined total of 11 people. Timothy Kaufman's funeral was held on April 1st at the Little Red Brick Mount Zion Baptist Church in South Jamaica, Queens, where his father had been a pastor. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio attended and remained for the entire two-hour funeral. In his remarks, de Blasio contrasted Kaufman's deep love of life with the brutal way he died. He understood what was good around us. He obviously had love for his fellow human being. He wanted only to do good and be good, de Blasio said during his eulogy. He was attacked because of who he was, plain and simple, de Blasio said. Eight and a half million people were attacked that night. Let me be straightforward, Mr. de Blasio continued. What if it had been a black man who had traveled to another city for the sole purpose when a standing ovation made it impossible to hear the rest of the sentence? Would it have been front-page news, day after day? On April 5th, Jackson, the first defendant charged with murder as an act of terrorism in Manhattan since the statute was revised after the 9-11 attacks, entered a plea of not guilty. New York-based defense attorney Sam Tolkien withdrew from his representation of Jackson, stating that his parents... David and Patricia Jackson were no longer funding their son's defense. Attorney Patrick Brackley was appointed by the court to represent Jackson. On January 23, 2019, Jackson pleaded guilty to six counts of first-degree murder, terrorism, hate crime, and weapons charges. He was the first white supremacist to be convicted of terrorism offenses in New York. When asked by the judge if the murder was meant to start a racial war, Jackson simply said, yes. On February 13, 2019, Justice Laura A. Ward of State Supreme Court in Manhattan sentenced Jackson to life in prison without parole. The maximum sentence permitted under the law. You killed a man solely because he was black and hoped to inspire a race war, Justice Ward said. There's no excuse for your actions. For his part, Jackson apologized for his actions, saying... I just wanted to apologize to everyone who has been affected by this horrible, unnecessary tragedy. It should never have happened, and if I could do it all over again, it never would happen for sure. Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance was present for the sentencing. He read parts of Jackson's 2,000-word manifesto. American law enforcement has been slow to acknowledge the rise and scope of white nationalism, and this has emboldened actors like the defendant, Vance said in a statement. We have too often treated these crimes as something less than terrorism, Vance said. The court today has an opportunity to declare that violent white nationalism will not be normalized and that its perpetrators will be sentenced like the terrorists they are. Members of Kaufman's family were also present at the sentencing. Cousin Richard Peake read a letter from his niece called Open Letter to a Murderer, which asked what reason there could be for such heartlessness and inhumanity. Tim Kaufman had A heart like a blanket crocheted with a grandmother's love. Huge, warm, and comforting, Mr. Peake read. An individual who knew life was about caring for his family and for others. He was a man of modest means who was rich with experiences, knowledge, and love. Of Jackson, the letter said, He crossed state lines to shove a 26-inch blade into another human's body someone he'd never met, repeatedly. All because he was consumed with a hatred that was pointless. Outside the courtroom, Jackson's lawyers said their client was brought up in a decent home by a loving family and served honorably in the military under African Americans without incident. But a series of disappointments broke his spirit and left him feeling worthless and desperate. Simply could not find direction, said lawyer Frank Sosinski. It's that type of person who is most susceptible to hate and terror. Vance also spoke with reporters after the proceedings. White nationalism will not be normalized in New York, Vance said. If you come here to kill New Yorkers in the name of white nationalism, you will be investigated, prosecuted, and incapacitated like the terrorists you are. The Hate Crime Files is researched, written, produced, and hosted by Terence Heath. That's me. Thanks for listening, and to all my listeners and subscribers, thanks again for your support. I'll be back with another episode on the 15th of the month. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, Please subscribe, tell your friends and family about it, and consider leaving a positive review at iTunes Podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, be careful out there and be good to each other.